Hello and happy birthday to and from the Sitcom Club. This is your host, Mooncat. Joining me this week is everyone. Ocho, are you there? Yellow. And way down south, Bogginstrovia. Hello, hello. And of course, in old London town, are you receiving us, DCT? Ahoy, hoy. Well, hey. So, the gang is all back together again, Fab Four. And unbelievably, it is a whole 12 months since this crazy gang of ours decided to get together and say, hey, let's do the show right here, which we actually used to do, because when we started the sitcom club, it wasn't a podcast, it was a live internet radio stream, and we would talk about a show for like three hours, with with a group viewing, sort of, early on. At some point, and please, somebody shout if you can remember this, but I've been racking my brains and I can't remember this. At some point in those early days we ended up with this fixation on a particular show from CITV circa 1990. And it grew to sort of mythical proportions. It was like a go-to. It was like, you know, if if anybody just outright said, anybody get any suggestions for a show in the future? Only one word would ever come back. And that one word was? Spats. Yay. Now, Ocho, you are going to be our technical expert for this show because... There's something about Spats, which we'll come to, in terms of its appearance. Oh, yes. That is a bit different. It is, as we've alluded to, the first anniversary of the Sitcom Club. And I just want to say to everyone who's been listening, thank you very much indeed for your support. And please stick with us, because we'll have lots of lovely treats ahead in 2014. But, chaps, I can't quite believe that we've been doing this for a year now. It doesn't feel like a year. I'll take your deafening silence as agreement. Anyway. I have some business outstanding from a previous podcast. Any other business, is it? The 1989 capsule. And there was criticism of split ends. Somebody saying, use your common. Ah, yeah. It appeared in, I think it was around the horn. There's a punchline, use a bit of common. With a double meaning. So people did use it to just mean common sense. Ah, I see. But of course, the thing of using a little patch of land. Not quite as good as the uh, the old headline, Tory MPs use Heath for sex. <laughs> so apparently using the word common to mean common sense was a thing pre-1989. The writers of Split Ends did not make it up. So not only was it obscure, it was dated. <laughs> At some point, I would like us to actually do a podcast on shows which have been, to use BBC speak, moved to a less competitive slot. So, for example, we would have ITV's Holding the Baby. We would have we'd have the second series of The Ten Percenters, which got shunted to post-Watershed. We would have A Prince Among Men with Chris Barry. We'd have Gwen Taylor in A Perfect State, the TV adaptation of Passport to Pimlico, some 50 years later. Oh, yeah, we could have lots of fun with that. All manner of things. What about the... I can't think of the name of it. The the Persuasionists. Now, was that a one-off or was that actually a series? Well, <laughs> it was a series that appeared to be a one-off to anyone who watched one episode. Generally, the first episode went out and it just went horribly wrong. And uh, after a couple of airings, halfway through the series, they moved it to a slot at 11.20 and it wasn't renewed. Does anybody remember that show with Jack D and Jeremy Hardy? that began at half past ten, and by the end of its run, it was on about five past one in the morning. I only remember the one-off, which was them doing a Crime Watch-style special. That would be Jack and Jeremy's uh, Police Fall, wasn't it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
That was a one-off. I think one. this one was called. Was it called Jack and Jeremy's Real Lives? Something like that. It was the summer of ninety, ninety-five, ninety-six thereabouts. And yeah, it was so weird to see a show end up so far away from its original time slot. I mean, usually you know they'll put things on earlier. The show with Lee Evans. So what now with Sophie Thompson, Stephen O'Donnell? That got moved to an early slot, seven p.m after a few weeks. Whereas Jack and Jeremy's Real Lives, because it was a post-Watershed show in the first place, there is only one place that you can push it in the schedule. And, and yeah, it was going out in the wee small hours by the end of it. But no, okay, we'll put that down as a future cast anyway. So the reason why we are gallowed here today is after 12 months of procrastination, we are finally going to discuss the show that had more requests than any other in the early days of the sitcom club, and that is 1990 children's ITV sitcom Spats. Now, Ocho, I alluded earlier on to this having an odd particular quality about it. Technically, if you could just elaborate on that for us. The first series was made by Thames Television as a co-production with Canadian channel YTV. The Y is sometimes held as standing for youth though the company itself apparently denies this because that's really important. As a result, I guess as they had Canadian money, Canadian actors, and a Canadian outlet for this show, it was decided to make it on NTSC. Even though it was shot in England, it's all made on NTSC. I think the first series, it's something like uh, video services provided by Fox Entertainment. So it was always slightly disconcerting when it used to turn up on Children's ITV on a Friday at about 4.40, watching it going, this is in England, practically everybody except for two people is English, why does it look like an import? I think that was one of the things that caught everybody's attention. Yes, I do remember, and this says more about me than it said about the people involved in it, I remember once on Children's BBC... I don't know if it was an April Fool sort of thing, but they pretended to have somebody on a monitor speaking from live from America by satellite. And not only did it not look like NTSC, but also there was no delay as well. And I thought, look, if, you, if you're going to try and hoodwink me, <laughs> this, you know, 11-year-old viewer, your target audience, then don't be so lax with the details. But I suspect that I might have been the minority there. And 99% of the audience didn't give a damn. The point is this, okay, now usually on the show I will give suggestions for further reading slash viewing at the end. Now this time I'm actually going to do this right at the outset because I must mention this fabulous little site that we found the other day while we were doing research for the show. A site by the name of gladyouremember.webs.com and this is a fan site with some very detailed articles it's got information on there about Mike and Angelo from same production company and same writers often. It's got information about Pob and Super Ted and all manner of different things. But there's a really, really detailed page on there about spats and it's probably the most detailed information about spats you'll find online. And they've got little cuttings in there from Look In and the TV Times and little audio clips and so on. It's absolutely superb. So yeah, check that out and you'll find tons of information about the show. But I highlighted a couple of comments here from that particular page. First of all, Lee Pressman said, When Grant and I get together, we always agree that Spats was the best series we ever wrote. The scripts, the cast, crew, directors, design, everything came together brilliantly and we're really proud of what we achieved. 
Also, Grant Cafro says, because this is touching on something I wanted to mention right at the outset, Lee Pressman and I, as lead writers in the show, did much of the casting ourselves, often auditioning actors at our office at Thames TV whilst in the midst of actually writing the scripts. We were very ably assisted by casting director Joyce Nettles, later of the RSC, who made superb suggestions. We've always adored weird casting mixes. Now, even before I saw that quote, I made a little note of some of the names who crop up in spats on occasion throughout the free series. Just to throw a few names out there. For example, Denise Coffey, who we just saw at uh, a consular office a few days ago, but we'll, we'll touch on that later on. She appears in a couple of episodes, as does Reese Iphens. Julia Sawala is in an episode, as are Duncan Preston, Danny John Jules, Jan Ravens, Jake Darcy, Sophie Ocanado, Kenny Ireland, who's been recently in Benidorm, Chris Langham, Hermione Norris, Trevor Peacock, you recognise from Vicar of Dibley, Steve Steen, we'll talk about his episode later on, Chloe Annett, who was in latter series of Red Dwarf, Richard O'Callaghan, we just mentioned the other week, from Seven of One, and most importantly of all, in no particular order, we had guest appearances from Match of the Day's own, Gary Lineker, The Sale of the Centuries, Nicholas Parsons, and, top of my list, Terry Hall and Lenny the Lion. Okay, so, first thoughts, ladies and gentlemen, Boganstrovia, over to yourself first. Give me your first impression of Spats. Did you remember watching Spats at the time? Of course, you've seen it recently now for the show. Yes, I do remember uh, watching it in uh, 1990. It does seem sort of mid-Atlantic because of um, partly being British and also Canadian. It doesn't quite know where it wants to be. It is in a similar situation to a few shows of that era where, and I guess you could say that about a lot of programmes, nowadays of course, is that it's trying to speak to a lot of people all at once. And it is actually at pains in that first episode to point out that our cast of characters in terms of the bosses are Canadian. They make that point of actually saying they're not Yanks, they're Canadian. The show itself was created by Andrew Bethel and I'll show as you say it is a co-production initially between Canadian and British broadcaster. And yeah, you have that situation where Okay, you want to be able to have references to places and people and events and so on that are going to strike a chord with the audience. But at the same time, of course, you can't be too parochial because you're trying to speak to more than one audience. DCT, what were your thoughts on Spats? Well, I remember watching it back in the day. Ah, CITV. Well, I was more of a BBC kid, but I remember CITV fondly for three things stand out. Nightmare, Round the Bend which I adore, and Spats. Now, I rewatched the first episode, and I like the fact that it starts with Spats being built, you know, because there are sitcoms where you fall into the reality that exists already, and it's very much a case of are you, are you with us or are you not. The jokes weren't plenty, but then again, I think it's also trying to find its play the thing is it's all pleasurable it's all enjoyable it's all charming and it's all fun that's the key element for me and it's an interesting angle for to watch now because you've got whereas you usually have someone coming into this world that's a little bit different a little bit strange you've actually got a situation where the audience is probably british they're watching this and the fish out of water are the two canadians 
coming over, going, oh, you, you Brits, which is a different take. But also, in the first episode, you have the use of a snake, a live animal, to create some chaos into the world. Uh, whereas if you look at other sitcoms that we've investigated in the last 12 months, and it's usually a dead body, a dead a dead human body that, that sort of spurs on chaos and panic. But um, I like the idea that if it's aimed at a teenage audience or younger, it's a live animal as opposed to a dead human body. I, I'm waiting for the day where it crosses over that and then you have that just sort of a teenage comedy and it's uh, or, or, or a young children's comedy and uh, it starts off with the discovery of a corpse. <laughs> well, I haven't seen any... CBBC recently, so maybe maybe it's happened in the last. Surely, surely that render ghost would have been improved if I would have found a dead body at first. Yeah, but that would be the origin story sorted out. Well, what's what's the name of the character who's in the first episode? The the newly dead guy. What Fred Mumford? I can't remember if it's in the actual episode or if it's in like the spin-off novel that it turned out he fell overboard on a ferry, which is why it takes a while for anybody to realise that he's even gone. I, in fact, I have a feeling that his family never find out. He just keeps turning up for his tea as usual. <laughs> Am I right in saying Rent-A-Ghost has quite a smug theme? Because it's someone going, Rent-A-Ghost? Yes. Like oh, that. yes. Yeah. Oh, yes. It was the best thing about the show. I'm not necessarily saying that Rent-A-Ghost itself was horrible and unbearable, but the, the highlight of every show was the theme tune. Rig to ghost. Um, yeah, that, that's what... I don't think it was somebody Anthony uh, Newley. Ah, <laughs> uh, if it was, imagine. But I, the thing is, we were talking about um, corpses in <laughs> children's television programs. Grange Hill, I distinctly remember an episode of Grange Hill. It must have been the early 90s where a uh, pupil gets into an argument with a teacher and the teacher just collapses dead. She said, no, I'm not going to listen to you. And the teacher just dies. And then there's no music over the credits. That's because that particular teacher was the one who had to play the closing theme every week. <laughs> I like the idea that something would be so self-contained that, that if someone dies, then there's just no editing or no music or no direction. I like the idea that something, something would be so self-contained. <laughs> that, that Or is it, or is it that the opposite, that um, the crossroads when uh, Benny Hawkins' girlfriend died? That they've got Simon May to make his own theme for it. Which I think is all available on iTunes. Simon Simon May. Is it, I keep saying Simon Mayo. Now, Ocho, Spats, you have seen nine episodes in preparation for this, but have you also read the what was commonly referred to as the TV tie-in novel? I have to confess I have not, and I have made no attempt to acquire said novel. I'm busy. I don't have time. To read everything that's out there that's about specs. But yes, I've watched nine episodes. Ask me a question about those. Ask me about things I have experienced. What do you make of those nine episodes of Spatch you saw? I was pleasantly surprised. I was expecting it to be a real chore. Actually based on the episode they showed for Old School Weekend. Which isn't a fantastic example of the show. But considering that it's meant for not me. Or it's meant for me in the past. That it's aimed at an age group to which I never really belonged. Even when I was chronologically aligned with that age group, I was out of sync. It wasn't like Metal Mickey, where I felt I had to do a bit more reaching. I felt I had to reach Metal Mickey a little more than halfway. Spats, I could meet Spats halfway. Okay, some of the jokes are going to be a little entry-level for 
my sophisticated tastes. But I can see why there is an incredibly detailed website about it. I can see why people talk about it with a great deal of affection. The other week, DCT and I, when we were reviewing 1989, we were talking about the portrayal of a gay character in Split Ends. Now, as I was talking about this, this reminded me that a wee while ago, we were discussing Spats, because of course the episode went out on the old school weekend on CITV last year, and I remember us discussing the portrayal of one of the characters and some of the lines that she's got, and I noticed some similarities there. That was a poke at me, wasn't it? Not so much a poke as a gentle prod. I know I know what you like. Yes, some months ago, I did start going, oh, I'm building up a fascinating picture of society in 1990 here. I suppose I'd better explain. I'm slightly more acutely aware of these things. Living in the US, where things are a bit different in terms of racial sensitivities and insensitivities, and sometimes I edit these shows on my laptop in a Korean cafe, so I think about these things. And what Mooncat's alluding to is, I mentioned that in the very first episode, character of Lily, played by Ling Tai, there's this discussion about the people who run spats, Americans, Canadians, and Lily says, they all look alike to me, which of course is a punchline about Southeast Asian people. And I just find it interesting. Been watching a lot of British television, and watching a lot more sitcoms over the past year. And Southeast Asians, as I call them, so that both sides of the Atlantic know what I'm talking about, I know, I think it's going out of fashion now, but in the UK, you for a while, still said Oriental. In the US, you use that word to describe a person, you get in a lot of trouble. They seem to get the last bite of the sensitivity cherry. Jokes are made around them that are not made about other groups at the time, and would have been made about other groups several years earlier. And why does it have to be spats that I make it? It just so happens that the first thing that came along that I could hook something onto this peg happened to be the friendliest and frothiest show we've done in a long time. If only we were doing the Watching Christmas special, (laughs) which ends with one of the characters with a lampshade on his head, false teeth, half-closing his eyes and going... Ah, sure. Did not make that up. That is the last the, shot. The is, there's, there's, no, there's no irony in it, and also it gets a big laugh from the audience. <laughs> I'm not setting myself up above the people of the 80s and 90s. I am <laughs> the people of the 80s and 90s. Just so happens where I am now and the things I've been watching is making me more aware. And I'm not accusing anybody of being a racist. I'm not accusing anybody of going along with monstrous ideas. Ling Tai delivered that line. She must have been okay with it on some level, tacitly, actively. However, if it was that bad, I don't doubt she might have been irritated by it or anything. It's social history, but any time you bring up race, people hear accusations where accusations aren't being made. I agree with you that it's something I think that we all become more sensitive towards as time goes on. And I think that that's something that comes with the gradual evolution of a multicultural society. And yeah, I've seen the occasional old show or maybe even shows that are not all that old where 
the odd line will be said, and perhaps I'm in the company of someone where I sort of, you know, I sort of react yeah, that's the thing. in a way it's that I wouldn't so much... necessarily do myself. Yeah, it's not so much a matter of having something banned or writing an angry letter. I've seen a discussion recently about it ain't off hot mom go in that direction because people who enjoy the show and are untroubled by certain aspects then think that when this discussion comes up they're being accused of you, you, well if you like this then you're a racist let's face it there are people out there who love to do that kind of thing love to come along are you enjoying that thing well you're bad but it's more a case of it is sometimes you're watching something and somebody says something and the air kind of goes out of the room oh the atmosphere sours a bit but that's a more general point. Back to spats. Specific examples then. All look all look alike to me. Somebody's choking and one of the other characters says, is he speaking Chinese? And says this to Lily. And Karen, trying to be nice to Lily, says, have I mentioned how much I like egg rolls? Because the joke there is that Karen is being insensitive. But I don't think he would necessarily have had that said about any of the other characters. What does this add up to? A picture of society in 1990. That's it. This is not Jacques Spatz. This is possibly Jacques 1990, if my schoolboy French holds up, which it might not. Oh, that was French, was it? <laughs> it might have been Welsh. It's an interesting little aspect. Just put a little ring about that going, race in 1990, it's a bit different from race in 2014, and more different than you'd think. Some people might think of 1990 as being modern times. I think a good text to consider when we have this discussion in a longer form will be the latter Alf Garnet series. Because as you say, just when you said there about 1990 interesting time, you sort of know you shouldn't fall into the trap of just expecting and in its own way sort of stereotyping but you've got a sort of expectation as to the kind of lines that might be delivered in say 1970 and many of them you know would not have found a place in a script in 2010 but 1990 in that in-between point isn't interesting that's why I introduced the topic because we're just discussing this the other day with regard to 1989 and of course Spats just one year later. It's an interesting period of time where you've got this transition from, you can say, humour based on stereotypes to humour today which by and large I think avoids those areas. Well now we're in kind of the post-ironic, terrible term, age as well where people are deliberately going straight for those jokes and then saying, ah, but I didn't really mean it, so I'm examining prejudice. And I think there's a lot of fraudulent activity with regard to that, uh, with some performers. I think that they've found a way of being able to make gags or portray characters that they would not have been able to do without that veneer. But, yeah, that's for another day. But anyway... We'd said before about how there are, there are some shows where you just sort of like the overall ambience and you like the overall feel of it and the location and so on. And yeah, Spats is one of those shows. I mean, I remember seeing Spats at the time and straight away I'm intrigued about this bizarre NTSC business and why this has happened to a show which has got largely British actors in it. So that intrigued me at first. And then 
as time went on, I'm a little bit out of the the age group for it, I suppose, but because it was still going on in 1992, and then it had a repeat run in 1996 as well, on Saturday mornings, and it's just one of those shows where it's you know exactly what it's going to be like from the get go, and the situation's nice, and I also quite like the fact that each person in the cast gets their moment in the spotlight. I mean, Ocho, you and I for the last few days. With a view to potentially doing it for the show, but I'm not sure that we're going to. We were watching episodes of Farrington of the FO. With that ain't happening. No, with Angela Thorne as head of the embassy or whatever it is. And I remember saying to you after episode three, I feel like I've got the measure of this now. John Quayle, who I refer to as Malcolm C. from Terry and Jim, he gets up to no good. And then Angela Thorne catches him at it, so to speak. Not like that. And then she puts a stop to it. You didn't see episode seven. Ah. (laughs) Yeah, I saw that. And after a while, I'm thinking, this is going to sort of just run like this each and every time. I sort of, yeah, I see where this is going. Each character is, you know, fairly two-dimensional and so on. In spats, it's nice that you get an episode that concentrates on... Stephanie Charles, and then you get an episode that concentrates in Vast Blackwood, and so on and so on. And that changes, that sort of shakes up the dynamic a little bit, because then even though it's you, it's one of those shows where you, you know that everything's going to get resolved within the one 25-minute situation. It's not going to have an ongoing narrative throughout the entire series. But I do like that when you get an ensemble piece and each person gets their, their moment. And generally... All the characters are quite nice people. Even when we factor in Karen, the supposed monster of the ensemble, there's no proper bully character who is actually quite unpleasant to be around. You know, there was that one character in Metal Mickey who annoyed me. Oh, yeah, he was horrible. Because he was just (laughs) picking at people and be. No matter how unpleasant Karen gets, there's no sense that she actually genuinely ruins anybody's day. She just tends to make a threat. It's fairly empty. People roll their eyes. TJ smooths the way a bit. There's no situation where it's like, oh, God, no, please, just don't open your mouth. You know who she reminds me of uh, very distinctly in terms of sitcom characters is Rebecca from Cheers, Kirstie Alley's character. Yeah, I, I would agree with that, yes. It seems to be the direct influence. I mean, I could be wrong, but it it, it does seem like there's certainly that element of uh, intimidating business businesswoman who actually isn't all that bad, but on the outside is quite menacing and domineering and um, intimidating. It's a very eighties concept. The eighties hadn't really finished yet by by nineteen ninety two. They were still happening in places. She seems more sort of um, determined, she does, than anything. That she's trying to save her own back with being the um, head of uh, operations in Europe. So she wants everything to go well. And any opportunity she gets, you know, for a promotion, uh, she'll do anything for it. Anything. Anything that's permissible on children's ITV. There would be, it'd be great if the, if there was an episode where she goes to TJ. Look, I really need this, but I'm gonna have to wait until after the show is finished. <laughs> I'm gonna have to wait until after TVI <laughs> to do what's necessary. 
<laughs> I, like the, I like the idea that that happens in the first minute of an episode and the remaining 20, 29 minutes is them looking at the camera in shame, waiting for it to end. I'm sure if I would have done it, well, it would have been a hell of a job for Tommy Boyd to explain what <laughs> just happened there. Also, did you not once spot Tommy Boyd trying to talk his way out of an awkward situation? Uh, an episode of Press Gang where somebody had been hypnotised and they were a marriage guidance counsellor and somehow they'd been hypnotised to keep saying divorce the bitch. And Tommy Boyd afterwards was kind of like, um, there might be some things that get said in these shows that you might not want to say. I can't remember exactly, but he'd clearly been quite embarrassed by this. Well, if he's gonna, Can if I just drag gonna... in the show that's going to replace Spats as the thing that we keep talking about but never actually review, Trouble in Mind? Because Jennifer Calvert... Spets is Karen Hansen, is in the first episode of Trouble in Mind, and by virtue of talking in a light, girly English accent, she looks about 10 years younger than she does in Spets, even though it's at the same time. It probably looks more her real age, I guess, and also she's not power-dressed. Are you sure are you, sure you haven't got a fixation with Jennifer Calvert? I've seen two things with her in, so I'm not really putting a great deal of effort <laughs> into my fixation. It's not or, like you and Alfie it, Bass. Or is it more DCT? Is it got the fixation with her? I think if you've seen her in two things, that also includes just two episodes of one thing. (laughs) Yeah, uh, so Ocho's seen her nine times. And if you want to go to my DeviantArt page and see my uh, fan art. (laughs) Before we have a look at some of the other episodes, chaps, I am given to understand that the way that Spats is is not actually the way that it was originally intended to be. Apparently it was originally meant to be a drama based around a 1930s themed restaurant or or, or bar. And, and uh, the thing is, the element of it was that, that intrigued me was the fact that if you look at the logo of Spats, it's more or less a pizza slice. And uh, of course, it's all about the burgers in the series. Well, it was, um, it was a matter of Alan Horrocks at Thames Television, just decided it didn't sound like a drama. I'm getting all this from the Glad You Remember website, by the way. I haven't done hours of research. That's all been done for me. He felt, as it's being pitched, I guess he thinks this sounds more like a sitcom. Let's make it as a sitcom. Which, this is what we're talking about, the whole thing of there being too much management in television. I just like, here's a drama. That sounds like a sitcom to me. It's a bit like the story about the uh, the 1960s police show Sergeant Cork. Ted Willis went in to pitch an idea to Lou Grade. The idea didn't fly, so it's like, well, anything else? Do you have any other ideas? And just off the top of his head, he went, Victorian police drama. <laughs> the idea was passing through his head as the words left his lips. <laughs> I was like, yeah, I like that. Yeah, you got a series. <laughs> so, okay, let's take a quick look at the overall premise. It is a branch of a Canadian burger bar in London. And we've mentioned already Jennifer Calvert is Karen Hansen, who's the head of the European operations. And Paul Michael is TJ, who is the chap who's too nice to be manager, really. And the staff themselves, Vast Blackwood, you recognise from all manner of things. I think he was in Locked Stock and Two Smoking Barrels. He's in an excellent episode of Only Fools and Horses, which often gets repeated, one about the um, supermarket hold-up, which actually had sort of similarities with one of the episodes that we saw with Steve Steen, 
later on. You've got Jonathan Cobstake as Stanley, Joe Greco as Vince, Stephanie Charles as Debbie, and you've got Ling Tai as Lily in the first series, and also Sue Devaney as Joe, and then later on we have Katie Murphy as Freddie. So that's the core group, and like I said, you've got all those guest actors, guest stars who appear throughout the free series. It's free series from 1990 until 1992, and it's a total of 33 episodes altogether. Boggs, I just want to ask yourself if you could talk a little bit about the children's sitcoms of this particular era. You had some shows which, of course, obviously, a show like Spats was going out around about either the middle or the end of that children's ITV block, whereas you get other shows, say, for example, like Ralph McTell's Tickle in the Tum, something like that, which had a lot of guest stars and so on. That was 4pm, that was for young kids and so on. Sometimes you'll get shows where a show like, for example, it's a drama, of course, but a show like Children's Ward could easily sit at the 4.45pm slot as the last children's programme of the day and also get a repeat on Channel 4 at around about 6pm or 6.30pm as well. So tell us a little bit about some of the shows that were going on then, shows that were on Children's BBC or so. Well, if we're talking about uh, children's sitcoms, take, for example, Thames, which uh, Spats was a co-production of. We were talking about Lee Pressman earlier. Uh, He broke Spats, but he would have also done a teabag, like you said, earlier on. Uh, Also, one I would like uh, bonus points for the fact that I have not mentioned teabag at any point during this recording. I've mentioned it in every other sitcom club podcast that has been, but I haven't mentioned it today. Just to subvert things a little bit. Yeah. Thames would do uh, quite a lot of those uh, sitcoms, like Mike and Angelo, from the top with Bill Oddie. They were simplistic sitcoms. You could say they were broad. They weren't smart. But in other ways, um, if we're talking about that... Uh, end of the day slot on a children's BBC, all round that sort of 440 slot. Now that would be used for sitcoms and drama. With children's ITV, they'd be using it for a press cam, which you could say is a sort of comedy drama. It would have been one of the first comedy dramas on a children's ITV. That slot would have been used more for dramas such as saying uh, Children's War, Drama Rama, and also in the early days of Central, a series called Murphy's Mob, which focused on a um, supporters club of a uh, what would have been an old fourth division football club. But the BBC would have used it also for uh, sitcoms, but also maybe even um, factual programming like Record Breakers, Think of a Number, and Heartbeat, and Take Heart. So that sort of slot would be the most key slot of the afternoon, because obviously at that time it would be on BBC, would be coming into News Round, so, you know, that would be garnering not only children, but also adults who would be switching on, because that would be the first news before the main news of the evening. And for Children's ITV, it would be the last sort of programme before um, Children's ITV would have finished for the uh, day. So it would be their main sort of key show. Okay, well, Ocho, to conclude then, tell us a little bit about the remaining episodes. We actually had about nine episodes to choose from, which, if you care to seek them out, 
are the thing that stuck out well the, the plots kind of all blur into each other the thing that i noticed was a thing we're saying about mainstream sitcoms is the frame of reference is just slightly behind or is it i'm not sure in in, a, in an arguable way there's a bit where stanley's python turns out to be called monty lily says monty python i love that program it's like well yeah i suppose a teenager in 1990 might have watched the 1989 repeats on BBC Two, but it seems a strange thing to say. And then there's a bit, did they still have Saturday morning pictures? I know that one is local to me, that they have got a Saturday morning cinema club still going in a sort of community hall there. So, I would, well, to say that it's still sort of going now, well, mostly DVDs as it would be now, not a sort of proper cinema club as we would think it would be. But they are still going today. We've got an old man in a shed who just retells the story of Mr. Horatio Nibbles and cries. Uh, and, and that's still what, less unsettling than the actual film, so... That is true, and that film is very unsettling. Mr. Horatio Nibbles, if anyone sees it, don't. It's like a bleaker version of Donnie Darko. Oh, I think that's where exactly where Donnie Darko came from. That means I'm going to have to uh, look it out now. If you haven't seen it, I, th- I think Richard Kelly probably, like, as a kid, like, had a had a trip to England and caught it on television, and it sort of, it, it just stayed stuck in his head, and he sort of went American, ah. Oh. I'm going to rescue one thing, as a reference that I still think is weirdly out of place. There's a bit where somebody's serving a burger to a kid, and they get angry at everything. Listen, eraser head. Wow. <laughs> I thought, where did that come from? <laughs> yeah. And yet, oh, that was good. Yeah, I was I was glad it was there. <laughs> that was the hold up episode with Steve Steen, which is a bit padded. I thought it was that and the ballroom one were kind of the weakest. But there was one bit we, we watched this one together, Mooncat, and we were sort of saying, "All right, it's, he's gesturing through his pocket like he's got a gun. It's not going to be a gun, or if it is a gun, people are going to go. This gun would never come off. It's not loaded. Bang. There's two things that could happen there." Not a gun, gun that's not loaded, bang, or is it? Now, full credit to them. It wasn't a gun, it was a cucumber. Okay, they went that direction. Bang! The cucumber goes off. <laughs> yes, that was good. Well, on this subject of like references and bits and pieces which may seem dated, I kind of like that. I mean, I like that there's bits and pieces in there. Well, to be honest, if they'd if... been talking about stuff that was really the stuff that teens in 1991 were into, it would probably dated worse than talking about Monty Python and Razorhead. Yes. And also, it's nice that you get little bits and pieces like that, especially in children's shows like we are just talking about, Boggs. When you get little instances like that where... If it's something that you're not aware of, well, there's two ways that you as a viewer can go with that. You can either just let it pass you by, or you can look it up. You can try and find out what it is that's been referenced. And, of course, we're all used to the the idea that as kids you would watch adult sitcoms, as in just, you know, pre- or slightly post-watershed sitcoms, and there'd be a lot of stuff that would go over your head. And then when you revisit them later on, Suddenly, there's there's bits of this this like dialogue that the major and faulty would have, and there'd be bits and pieces in there that I just wouldn't get. Or, when like you said, Ocho, I mean the the repeats of Python in '89. I remember watching them, and of course half the stuff at the time I didn't have a damn clue what they were talking about as far as different philosophers and so on. I get it now, but it I didn't just 
let it phase me and think, oh, this isn't speaking to me. So yeah, I quite like the the fact that there are little bits and pieces. I'm still puzzled as to who came up with the idea to to have Lenny the Lion because <laughs> my only recollection of seeing Lenny the Lion at the time was on a schools program around about 1982. So yeah, I don't remember him being on TV very much in the 1980s, let alone. 1991, but what the heck. Okay, so would I be right in saying that Network or Revelation Films or whoever it would be would be well advised to bring out perhaps Series 1 of Spats on DVD to test the market. It did get repeat on Old School Weekend last year, like we said, and from what I saw on Twitter, the reaction was pretty good. A lot of people saying, hey, remember this from the time and so on and so on. So do we think that somebody should take a punt on this and perhaps bring it out? There's clearly a great deal of affection for this show. The old school weekend demonstrated that. We've demonstrated that. I can completely see why people like this. We haven't really mentioned much about the cast, have we? But the, the characters are generally nice. Even Karen occasionally. They're all well cast. Because it's 25 minutes of kids' comedy, the characters are necessarily thin, but all the actors embody them. And I, I care about them. I care what happens. So yeah, I'd buy a DVD of this. And I feel terrible because I picked holes in it earlier, saying the references were dated. Actually, that's a good strong bit of characterization. A lesser show would have had teenagers only talking about what interested teenagers in the 1990s, but of course teenagers have varying frames of reference. I'm on the defensive now, and I'm defending Spats against my own self. Sorry, I overthink things. I like overthinking things. If you are the owner of the publishing rights to Spats, you heard Ocho say, I'd buy a DVD of that. That is a verbal contract. That's one guaranteed sale that you've got. That is an invitation to treat. And don't think you can set any price. And then come to me. 20 quid for four discs is roughly, you know, may- maybe less than that. Fifteen ninety nine for four discs. I reckon you'll go to $99 if it's a Blu-ray. Anyway. A Blu-ray of an NTSC PAL, NTSC PAL, NTSC PAL cross-conversion. Canadian co-production. I bet the Quebecois, however it's pronounced, probably made them go through CCAM. And now, of course, I'm being racist against Quebec. Sorry. <laughs> Now, DCT, what are your final thoughts on Spats before I unleash something towards you? Oh dear. Well, Spats is a slice of nostalgia for me. I remember watching it at the time. I remember CITV at the time. And although CITV wasn't the be-all and end-all of my kids' viewing, not my kids' viewing, but my viewing as a kid. I don't have any children, to my knowledge. But it's nice to revisit any television of that era for me really not necessarily just children's television but also television in general and you know like we did previously where we visited 1989 now I wasn't familiar with any of those but it was a pleasure to investigate that era in that time and, and kind of bring back memories of of television of that time now with spats from a sitcom perspective it has its moments but because it's designed for the CITV audience then it's not like the gags are thick and fast but it's comfortable and, and it's charming and it has its moments. And it benefits, I think, from having those vague references, <laughs> occasional uh, strange references to things beyond what a child of that age would know. And it's sort of where nods and in-jokes and so forth are kind of coming forth. I continue to like it. Um, I want to know when we're going to do a 
sitcom club conversation about Mike and Angelo, but there you go. Well, that could be coming in the future. But no, what I was going to hold in your direction, DCT, is we had a tweet from Mr. DV, who said, you asked for worst ever sitcoms. Well, I couldn't face more than one episode of Slinger's Day. So at some point, DCT, we will definitely do a podcast on Slinger's Day and its prequel, Tripper's Day, and also its Canadian adaptation. Check it out. Not with Dr. Steve Brawl. I think that's far more recent. <laughs> no, I, I'm not. Last not, it is not Steve Brawl. Check it out with John C. Riley. I'm, I'm all up for that. Yeah, no, for sure. But I, I should point out that um, in terms of uh, connecting the dots, I mean, you have Tripper's Day and Slinger's Day. I should also point out that Mike and Angelo and Spats are more or less, one can only assume, are set in the same reality, in the same world. Because not only are, have they do they share the same writers, Grant Catherine and Lee Pressman, but also... Uh, they're both set in Cricklewood. <laughs> Funnily enough, Michelangelo retains its traditional PAL UK picture, even though it has all of the other sort of transatlantic elements added into it, the, the sort of intro and here's what's on next week and so on and the canned laughter and all that kind of thing. Bit of an oddity. Um, Hold on to the thought of sitcoms that might take place in the same universe. We're going to come back to that. Okay. What, in this episode? No. Well, the thing, I'm still waiting, Mooncat, for you to go on your anti-racism rant about Katie Murphy's character. Oh, well, no, yeah, okay. Now, the thing is that Katie Murphy, she's doing this little sort of skit. She's doing a sort of more of a, a sort of a supernatural version of Private Fraser. When the plot is unfolding, there's one, for example, the episode with Steve Steen, when they've got the guy trying to hold them up, trying to get the... Uh, taken out of the safe. And we actually, we both asked the same question when we were watching this simultaneously. Why would you try and hold up a burger bar? Why are you trying to not west in the road? They've probably got loads more in their safes than we've got here. But no, in that episode where they keep on going up the stairs and then they don't come back down because of course they're all in the room with the rubber. Casey Murphy's sort of looking into the distance and saying, oh, she doesn't actually say we're all doomed. But yeah, she's just sort of doing that kind of character. And yeah, it didn't bother me. If, if we're going to talk about stereotypes... What about John Gordon Sinclair in Snakes and Ladders? Dog, don't get me back on that. (laughs) But full marks to the makers of Spets that every time she goes on one of her weird old story routines, they change the lighting in a completely non-realistic fashion. Yes. I liked that. You know, I'm really (laughs) surprised. I thought that this was going to be us being all giggly and postmodern and doing what everybody on the internet does, which is taking something we liked from our childhoods and then tearing it apart. Like we're big men, but it works, doesn't it? Well, the thing is, we, we don't we don't do that on the show. And if you are new, everybody the... else does, and we will eventually fall. We Honestly, can't hold out forever. New, if you are a new listener to the podcast, and I've said this, I usually say at the beginning of a run when we've had a little break or something like that, we absolutely adore sitcoms in general and the shows that we talk about. Okay, Snakes and Ladders is an exception, but. No, we don't do the Channel 5 clip show business. And if we ever find ourselves sliding towards that, if if that's where we suddenly end up without realising it, then somebody tell us, because then we're going to stop. Okay, but I thought this was the nearest we were going to get to that mindset. And it's just watching, it's like, okay, things are over-explained, because it is for a really weird demographic, because I imagine it's 440, so you're going to try and have to appeal to 10-year-olds but also maybe 15-year-olds. That's impossible. That's a ridiculously long period of time in a person's life to, to be able to try and appeal to both ends of that spectrum. 
Makers of Spets, I salute you. You, you know, I think it's an interesting point as well that if you look at the fact that that was three series, it was it was three years. Um, if you look at kind of the age span that that's kind of aimed at and compare it to, say, Mike and Angelo, which went for 12 series from 1989 to 2000, I'm, I'm very, I'd be very intrigued to see which of the original audience who got into it in 1989 was still watching it in the year 2000, mm-hmm. you know? I was actually, I was astonished to discover that the other day. I mean, obviously by 2000 it was way way past CITV viewing age and I had no idea that Mike and Angel went on that log and, and I remember it was still being on about occasionally seeing it listed around about the mid 90s but I didn't know what was going on 11 years after it began but that's, that was amazing. that's the thing even if you're 9 years old when in 1989 and you, you start enjoying Mike and Angelo what you're going to be watching the last series at 20? You could almost say my parents are aliens that went on for a few years so you know if he started at a certain age. I mean, Wolf went on from 89 to 97, and I think it's fair to say that that dog's dead. Of course, as far as shows of a narrative are concerned, I mean, like dramas and so on, I mean, when did Grange Hill end? Grange Hill was on for, what was it, best part of 30 years? I think it was a mistake to have all the same kids. <laughs> no, you're thinking of Please, sir. <laughs> Where everyone's the same age as John Alderton Let's and the bring same height as well. <laughs> <laughs> I think they should bring it back and they all happen to now work in the same police district and it's called Police Sir. Uh... Hey. hey. So, Boggs, what are your final thoughts then on Spats? To say that I was very cynical at the start, I wasn't a massive fan of Spats, to tell you the truth, at the start. But when you're looking at other shows and maybe other sort of children's sitcoms now, you'd say that it would be um really sort of half-decent. I think it was really the first series which didn't really hook me. But having seen the subsequent series now, by series three, at least it's got... um, You can see the change in the cast and the characters, right? You could say that Stanley is taken from Rodney from Only Fools and Horses and uh, Vince from Dellboy. But... By the third series, you know, they've each got a character, you know, but they're not two-dimensional, and at least they've got some aspect of um, their character which are at least enjoyable. Well, let me give you that website address again, because like I say, it's a lovely little resource. Gladyouremember.webs.com webs w-e-b-s dot com and there is a spats page within there and also an episode guide and episode summary pages as well now we're still working our way through the list of requests and we will be back next week with an all new show not sure what it's going to be yet but uh, it's probably going to be something from the to see pile meanwhile if there's any other shows that you'd like us to cover in forthcoming podcasts like I said, you can tweet us at the Sitcom Club. You can email us feedback at sitcomclub.com. If there's any shows that perhaps Ocho or Boggs have we've discussed them already, or perhaps if you've got an idea for a year for DCT and I'd talk about on the time capsule. From yourself, Ocho. Goodbye. From yourself, Boggs and Strovia. Bye. And from yourself, DCT. Cheerio. This is Hey Ho Mooncat and Co. saying thank you very much for listening to the Sitcom Club.